Welcome to episode 55 of the Christian Feminist Podcast, where we'll be talking about Margaret Cavendish's Blazing World. I'm Marie Haas, and with me today are Leah Henning and Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Hi, Leah, Victoria. Hello. Hi. So let's introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new to the program. Victoria? Hello, everyone. I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Uh, I am currently Senior Manager of Audience Development <coughs> at Public Radio International in Minneapolis, uh, and because PRI is at least half uh, a working newsroom, my life, given current world events, is pretty crazy right now, so I'm, it's evening as we're recording. I have worked a full day. I'm very tired. Uh, if things that I'm about to say don't make sense... Uh, that's partly because Margaret Cavendish is a little bit wonderfully crazy and partly because I am exhausted. So please, uh, please bear with me today. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Victoria. <laughs> I'm sorry for your exhaustion, I can understand that with, yeah, the world. Um, Leah. Hi, my name is Leah Henning. I have my master's in history from Loyola University in Chicago. I'm currently living in Woodbury, Minnesota, which is a suburb of St. Paul, with my cat, who is named Lady Jane Grey. So you can probably guess that I uh, specialized in British history. I am currently working as a job coach for a vulnerable adult who works with elementary students. So in contrast to Victoria's hectic newsroom job, I uh, get to listen to kindergartners uh, sound out words during the day. Nice. <laughs> so, um, and for myself, I'm Marie Haas. Uh, like I said, I'm a, a regular panelist on the podcast. Um, I have a PhD in early modern literature from Florida State University. I'm currently working on an MDiv at Yale Divinity School. And I've been interested in Margaret Cavendish for a long time now, this, the story of her life and her writings are just so fascinating. And in today's episode, we're, we're looking at what's probably Cavendish's most famous work, her proto-novel, The Blazing World from 1666. First, in the knowing section of the episode, I'm going to give a little bit of background on Cavendish and The Blazing World. Then, in the reading section, we'll talk about what we see going on with gender and with religion in the book. And, um, like you guys have noticed, there's a lot going on with a lot of things in a lot of different directions, so I'm sure we'll have some interesting things to talk about. So, Cavendish, who was she? Living from 1623 to 1673, she was one of the most prolific female writers of the 17th century in England, publishing 23 volumes ranging across genres from philosophical prose, poetry, drama, novel, short fiction, and letters. Um, she lived during the English Civil War and the Restoration. Um, she was born Margaret Lucas, the eighth child in a wealthy Essex family, and she served as maid of honor for Queen Henrietta Maria when the court was in exile. Um, it was at that time that she met and married the royalist General William Cavendish. They lived on the continent until the restoration of Charles II to the throne in 1660 when they returned to England. Cavendish began publishing her work in 1653, and she kept up a steady stream until her death at the age of 50. Her works display an interest in just an extraordinary range of subjects, from proto-feminist criticisms of women's subjugation to theories of war to talking about animals as thinking and feeling beings to uh, creating some of the first critical analyses of Shakespeare. 
Uh, one overarching concern in her writing is natural philosophy, which I think we, we've seen in the blazing world here. Uh, she was the first woman to be allowed to visit the Royal Society, a group of experimental philosophers who were instrumental in instituting scientific empiricism. Um, and her works often countered or criticized the systems of natural philosophy and the assumptions about nature that she saw going on in this scientific thought around her. Until a few decades ago, Cavendish was maybe best known in literary criticism through Virginia Woolf's lament about her in A Room of One's Own, where Woolf takes Cavendish as an example of failed genius that needed to be controlled through formal learning in order to truly flourish. Wolf asks, what could tame, bind, or civilize for human use that wild, generous, untutored intelligence? She says, it poured itself out higgledy-piggledy in torrents of rhyme and prose, poetry and philosophy, which stand congealed in quartos and folios that nobody ever reads. Instead, Wolf says, Cavendish should have had a microscope put in her hand. She should have been taught to look at the stars and reason scientifically. Her wits were turned with solitude and freedom. But in the last few decades, more and more people have begun to read Cavendish's torrential productions. And she's appreciated now, especially for the thing that Wolf finds lacking in her, um, which is how she doesn't reason according to the science of the Royal Society of the Emerging Empiricism. Um, Cavendish critics have found critiques that gendered assumptions embedded in the science of the Royal Society, who did work with these microscopes and telescopes that Wolf mentions. Cavendish instead creates this, this different system of natural philosophy, one in which, as opposed to like mechanism, all parts of nature are alive and all parts of nature are connected to each other and have their own forms of reason so that every bit of matter is alive and thinking in Cavendish. And as opposed to the tendency in 17th century empiricism to talk about nature as a female entity to be exploited and subdued as a lifeless and powerless object, and Cavendish has thought nature is a female entity who is self-knowing, powerful, and can never be fully known or controlled by humans. So we see some of that going on in The Blazing World, this piece of utopian speculative fiction that Cavendish published as a companion volume to her observations upon experimental philosophy, where she puts forward some of these criticisms of experimental science that I've just mentioned, um, especially when it comes to microscopes, which uh, Cavendish says don't re reveal true knowledge of nature, but only partial and frequently deceptive knowledge. As a fictional companion to observations upon experimental philosophy, the blazing world repeats these criticisms in a different form, especially when the empress of the blazing world talks about science with her various groups of philosophers. But at the same time, it also deals with you know, a whole bunch of other things, including gender and religion and the power of the imagination. Um, so before we look uh, some more at how the book deals with gender and religion. Um, I wanted to see what you guys thought about Cavendish and the Blazing World in general. Some of your your first reactions. I'll say also one of the one of the things I like most about the book, just on its level of fiction, is its use of meta narrative, um, with Margaret herself showing up as a character, characters creating worlds within themselves and moving within uh, within and between worlds and so on. It gets pretty crazy and fun. Um, but so what about you? Had you heard of Cavendish before this? What were your initial reactions to the blazing world? Is it fun to you as well? I don't know. Um, Victoria, what do you think? Uh, so improbably, I had never read the blazing world before. Um, I had read about it. I had read some other Cavendish, though, unfortunately, it was years ago when I was prepping for prelims. So I, I don't remember the text that I read. I remember some really strange, it was a, like scientific theory text, and I remember there was this really strange, funny passage about maggots and cheese, um, but, but that's, that's all I can recall um, at the moment. But I, I did, I enjoyed um, reading The Blazing World a lot, though it, it took me a, a while to get going and kind of get um, in the swing of, of the text, get in the rhythm of it. Because um, I, I really felt like it was um, 
kind of assembling a, a lot of Renaissance and, and medieval era texts that I had read before. Um, it, it sort of felt like parts of a lot of those things together. Um, I, I could feel the Fairy Queen, I could feel, um, Marie, you mentioned the, the sort of self-insertion meta-narrative, so that made me think of Chaucer. Um, there, there's definitely um, a lot of Thomas More's Utopia here and, and some other things. So um, that that was an interesting thing to kind of go through to and, and feel, um, maybe not necessarily influences, but, but kind of my, my brain jumping to, to other texts. But I'm, I'm excited to, to talk about um, how how the text deals with, with gender and religion, too. Oh, yeah, thinking of Chaucer, it does have a sort of uh, Book of the Duchess kind of feel of falling into the text, doesn't it? Um, what about you, Leah? Like Victoria, I, I have, of course, heard of Cavendish in my studies and in purposefully searching out historical female figures, but I hadn't really had the excuse to or the time to read any of her works before. So I really loved reading or honestly skimming through Blazing World, um, especially like I, I'm just piggybacking off what Victoria said It with the memory of Thomas More's Utopia or Spencer's Fairy Queen, which are two of my favorite books. Um, there's just so much there that connects to all of those different uh, early modern texts. That's wonderful. Um, and there are so many aspects of the world she constructs and the way she addresses big questions concerning the construction of society that remind me of those books specifically. Um, and I think that after this podcast, I'm going to have to go through it again and take my time reading through Blazing World a little more closely to appreciate it more. Yeah, I hadn't read it for a while before rereading it for this, and it's just it's new things every time. It's hard to understand this text, but it's fun to try. <laughs> um, so given that, let's move on to our reading section then. Um, and Victoria, if you could attempt a summary of the plot of the blazing world in as much as it has a summarizable plot. Um, we can then go on from there to talk about gender and religion. Okay, I will do my best. Um, a lot of things happen in this text, and uh, a lot of them are kind of fantastical. Um, I'll do my best to be concise, and uh, Marie and Leah let me know if I, I leave anything important out. Uh, so the text starts in a, a very kind of fairy tale uh, sort of tone. A a man loves a maiden, and she lives by the sea, uh, which is useful for him uh, because it enables him to kidnap her before her father notices. There are a bunch of man, men on the ship um, that kidnaps her. They take her to the North Pole. Um, Providence saves her. Um, and causes the men who took her to freeze. She is not frozen uh, by, quote, the light of her beauty, the heat of her youth, and the protection of the gods. Um, and it turns out that the North Pole is actually connected to another world with multiple suns. This is the blazing world. Um, a bunch of hybrid animal people live there, and uh, each different kind of animal person, of which there are several, we will get to that later. Um, they have jobs that suit their animal species. They live in these separate communities. Um, the emperor of the blazing world takes a shine to our maiden, thinks she is a goddess, and tries to worship her. Uh, she says, no, that that's not, uh, I don't want you to do that. Um, so instead of her being enshrined as a goddess, they get married, and he makes her empress. Um, they, and then there's lots of sections where she wants to get to know uh, about this new world that she is in, so she asks uh, a lot of questions to determine how their society is structured. Um, this is where the Thomas More stuff really, really feels, uh, really feels relevant. 
Um, she asks about pretty much every subject under the sun. I'm not going to touch on all of them. Uh, she learns that they think law causes division, um, and that monarchy is the best form of government, because a body only has one head, so a body people should only have one head. Uh, by the same token, their religion is monotheistic, but women are not allowed in their public congregations and have to worship uh, at home. Also, in a related note, priests and governors are eunuchs. Um, there's a, a kind of women as distraction theme, which I'm sure we will cover. After that, lots of discussion about the science behind the natural world, um, how the sun and the moon work, why the animals are the way they are. There are also sections on uh, rhetoric, oratory, philosophy, um, with the animals responsible for the animal people responsible for all those things. Uh, eventually, she founds a new church where women are much more actively involved. Um, there's a whole section that covers uh, history of theology, um, Adam and Eve, and Kabbalah. And then my notes just say, etc., etc. <laughs> uh, the Empress decides during this um, sort of religion history section that she needs spiritual guidance. She wants the spirit of a writer to help her figure out um, this world and its organization and what organization is best. And so uh, she summons the Duchess of Newcastle, uh, who's in fact Margaret Cavendish herself, so we have this this authorial uh, insertion in a meta-text. They have conversations about wanting to rule various worlds in various ways, uh, and then eventually the Empress hears that her home world is under attack, uh, at which point she invites the Duchess's soul to live in her body, uh, and then... There are a series of attacks, and in the one with the most detail, the fishmen have submarines, and then they win the war. And that is all I have. The, fish, the fishmen have submarines, and then they win the war. And that's my summary. <laughs> that's great, thanks. Oh, yeah, the submarines are interesting. There's also jet engines. Did you notice that? The submarines have jet engines when they're above the water. Anyway, um, okay, so, but moving on from the summary then, uh, let's build on that foundation to talk a little bit about what's going on with gender here. And there's lots of things. So, um, Leo, what are your thoughts on gender in the blazing world? Oh my goodness. I didn't really know where to start with this. Um, Gender always comes into play in very interesting ways. And in, in, when you are reading an early modern woman's writing, and Cavendish is more like the epitome of that rather than an exception. Like In the first few pages, we have a woman becoming blessed by providence or the gods for continuing through hardships of being kidnapped by a man with the intent of marrying her, um, which is a generous description, uh, to become the empress of an entire new world. And she's adorned with gold and gems and burdened with the warrior-like protection of all her people. Uh, and this heroine can talk to men as a superior and asks penetrating questions. Uh, not exactly the typically accepted behavior of a woman in 17th century England. Um, and people have literally made careers writing and talking about all this. So I'm just going to point out a few things that really stood out uh, in the excerpts that we read for today. Um one would be how the female form is literally everywhere in Blazing World, uh, from a symbol of purity in the lady at the beginning to the symbol of the warrior with the crowning of the empress, uh, to the ethereal and academic image of Cavendish later on, as well as some of the spirits um, that uh, the Duchess converses with. But these 
roles, they kind of blend and blur all of the lines of traditional gender roles and typical genres of writing itself. Male and female are not really shown as the same so much as they are equally valuable to each other. The Empress asks such questions and takes such measures in the blazing world that usually would have been accepted only from a man uh, at the time this was written. And I'm, I'm blurring the world of the book with the historic uh, world that Cavendish was existing in as she was writing this, because the ideas are just so unique. I, I, I feel uh, coming from where Cavendish was when she was writing this, because we see a woman organizing a government, converting an entire world to Christianity, and then even ordering the aid and aid in a war. <laughs> it's, it's unheard of um, or unex- unexpected for an early modern kind of deal. From what I could gather from the bit of research I did about Cavendish herself, um, she was known. She she is known among scholars for wanting to assert her place among her contemporary male academics and writers. So that was another way that I saw gender kind of coming through in this text um, by kind of pushing equal worth. Um, So the scribe scene in particular, where the empress first expresses interest in having the souls of Plato or Aristotle as her scribe. And then when she's dissuaded from that, the empress moves on to saying, oh, well, how about Descartes or Galileo? And eventually she settles instead on the figure of the duchess herself, um, who is described as an ambitious woman and one so bold as to address the spirit of the great of great fortune later on in the epilogue we even have we have this desire to be accepted by her contemporaries addressed directly by cavendish i'm gonna give a quote here quote my ambition is not only to be empress but authoress of the whole world and that the worlds I have made, both the blazing and the other philosophical world mentioned in the first part of this description, are framed and composed of the most pure, that is, the rational parts of matter, which are the parts of my mind. End quote. I just have to admire her for pushing herself and her own gender to be accepted um, as equal or on par uh, with her contemporaries. Um, And again, there's so much to be said about gender in Blazing World, I know, but there is one other instance of how gender interacts with the text that I would like to point out, and I'm going to guess that we're going to be talking about it more um, a little bit in a little bit, so I won't say too much, but I have to mention gender in the discussion with the priests in the first part. The way gender worked in the conversation between the empress and the priests was really interesting for me because it not only shows the dichotomy of women from the public space of the church or religion, but also a faulty logic that lies behind that thinking as the empress just keeps asking questions of these priests and goes, hmm, this doesn't sound right, and then goes ahead and creates her own uh, church. So that dichotomy, especially as regards women participating in religious actions, wasn't anything new at the time Cavendish wrote this, but it's important to note that acting through religion was one of the main ways for women to exercise power in a public space. Um, And that was something that grew more and more over time after the time that Cavendish was writing this. So I just found it interesting that it came through in her writing. So I don't know, what did you ladies think about gender and how it interacted with um, the Empress and the Duchess and all Cavendish's musings? Oh yeah, that's a lot of, a lot of great points you brought up. I mean, of course, 
the power of the empress stands out as one of the main points, though there's possibly some complexities going on with is Cavendish aligned with all of the empress's ideas and techniques or not and so on, but definitely this major uh, image of female power. And I would agree certainly that um, Cavendish is asserting the validity of her own scientific opinions over against those of her contemporaries. So in that passage you mentioned, Leah, where uh, the empress is trying to choose who will be her scribe, um, some of the other people mentioned are, uh, you mentioned Descartes, some of the other people are Van Helmont, Hobbes, and Henry Moore. Um, and those four, Cavendish had explicitly responded to just a couple years before this work in um, philosophical letters. She counters their systems of natural philosophy and asserts her own in contrast to that. Um, so I'd say definitely the same thing going on here with her rejection of them as scribes in, fa in favor of um well, herself, really. Um, and one other thing about gender that I noticed on this read-through that I hadn't before was there's this kind of kind of boring <laughs> allegorical section near the end of part one of the text where there's this debate among female characters like honesty, fortune, prudence, and so on um, about whether or not fortune should favor Cavendish's husband who'd you know, had some bad luck with finances and the war and so on. Um, but that that's kind of an interesting section in terms of gender too, because you have this, this public uh, debate among women or among female characters that's a parallel to something Cavendish does at the end of orations of diverse sorts um, from 1662, where she has a bunch of women debate about the role of women. So similarly, uh, women speaking out here, but in a different way. Um, what were some of your thoughts, Victoria? Uh, well, you guys have, have covered a, a lot of what I'd like to say, um, sort of going backwards and, and talking about movements contemporary um, to her. So I'm, I'm going to go forward in my comments and say that the section Leah mentioned with the priests about um, the, the role of women or lack of role of women in the church, um, which I'm, I'm sure we'll also get to in our, in our religion section, um, made me think, man, I'm really glad Margaret Cavendish was not alive for Protestant purity culture, because there, there, you can sort of see um, a similar narrative, the like, um, ladies, it's your response that your brother not stumble uh, narrative because of of how the church is set up. So I I thought that was that was interesting and in sort of a perverse. The more things change, the more they stay the same kind of way. Yeah, definitely. Um, though not <laughs> not a new idea then either. Definitely. Um, okay, so let's talk about this passage that you've both brought up. That was the first point I wanted to get to in talking about religion in the text. Um, so with in this passage, we, ha, uh, we have the empress talking with the priests of the blazing world about how their religion works and is structured. And she's surprised that women aren't allowed into the congregations and, and also have no congregations of their own. Because you would think that if this reason of their presence being too distracting is like the real reason, they could still gather together themselves. But no. Um, and like, like you both mentioned too, uh, this, this women as dis dangerous distraction reason is why priests and governors are eunuchs, um, in the world, in this world. So they won't, uh, be ruled by women. And so women won't rule the, rule the world though that in this case, I guess didn't work because I guess the emperor isn't a eunuch, I suppose. But, <laughs> um, so the point I wanted to bring up uh, with that is what Cavendish or uh, what the Empress does um, in her reforming the religion in the blazing world. Um, I think you could read her reformation of religion there as Cavendish making an argument, of course, for the full participation of women in the church, um, perhaps uh, women in positions of authority in the church. 
Um, so the, the, the reforms that the Empress makes is to institute herself as the head of her own congregation of women. So perhaps you could see that as her effectively making herself the head of the church in the blazing world. And then through her preaching and teaching, the Empress, the text says, gained an extraordinary love of all her subjects. Um, the women in this congregation of women are described as having, uh, the text says, quick wits, subtle conceptions, clear understandings, and solid judgments. Um, so it seems like there's an argument here that women have these qualities and so could have these roles in the church, um, could learn as much and do as much in the church as men could. Um, and that, uh, so that, that was the first main point I wanted to bring up um, in relation to religion. A little bit more complex, though, is the other main thing I wanted to look at with religion, um, and that's what to make of the means with which the Empress and her reform of religion on the blazing world um, subsequently exercises control over her subjects through religion. Um, because this is a very, a very interesting section to me, and I'm not sure how to interpret it. I'll be interested to see you guys' interpretations. Um, so, in order to control her subjects, the Empress builds two rooms, one made of diamonds and with burning stones. Um, it's made of diamonds, so the room won't be damaged by the fire. Um, and this room is supposed to evoke hell. And another room made of shining, cool star stones that's meant to evoke heaven. These rooms are beside each other and they're constantly rotating and they're open to a large audience, which at this point, it's not stated specifically, but seems at this point to presumably include men as well as women. Um, and the rooms are situated within a larger room, this dark space um, that's an intentionally created darkness because in, on the blazing world, um, night is as bright as day due to all the blazing stars in the sky. Uh, so in the hell room, the empress preaches fire and brimstone sermons, and in the heaven room, the empress preaches sermons of consolation. So what's interesting to me here is the use of technology to create religious conversion and exert religious control. And um, it's my theory that she's possibly here creating a criticism of Francis Bacon's New Atlantis, another piece of utopian fiction, which was published in 1623, um, where I would argue, and there's not really time here to get into the details of why I would argue this, but I would argue that it's implied that the technologies created through scientific domination of nature might be used to create spectacles to encourage religious and political submission. So that's part of what Bacon's doing in the New Atlantis. Um, but here, that's not just implied, it's being really transparently, heavily stated, or even perhaps overstated. Um, so the way I'd be tempted to read this is as Cavendish criticizing both the use of actual physical technology in a kind of enforced conversion, um, because after all, this technology of the, the diamond and firestone combination later is a critical weapon in that war with the, the fishmen and the submarines, um, of a, a weapon of physical violence. Um, but so Cavendish would be criticizing the, that use of physical technology, but also the rhetorical, com the rhetorical com uh, technology of this kind of threat of hell slash hope of heaven um, combination that's uh, posed within this space of created darkness. Um, so we might see this section as one part in which the empress should be sort of distinguished from the point of view of the author, maybe. Because in a later part of the book, we have the Duchess character persuading the Empress to allow the blazing world to return to the governmental and maybe the religious ideas that it had before her, her arrival and her interventions had complicated things and caused factions. Um, so you could possibly read that as Cavendish's disavowal of these multiple technologies. Um, and overall, when she talks about religion in other places, it seems like she favors a simplicity of faith and um, unity, unity in terms of not killing each other over religion. Um, 
Though, of course, in this reading, I wonder if that means that you'd have to get rid of the women in the church if we have this second counter-reform going on. I don't know. Um, but that's just one possibility for reading that. Um, again, I'll be interested to see what you guys think about those rooms of heaven and hell. Um, there's a lot of other things going on with religion here, too. I mean, Victoria mentioned the whole passage where Cavendish, I mean, Cavendish through the Empress talking with the various groups of uh, animal men and spirits gets into questions of how matter relates to the immaterial or not, um, and some questions of theological interpretation. Um, and there's also some mentions of Judaism and Islam throughout the text, and not always negatively. Um, so perhaps uh, you might have any comments on those sections as well. But um, but especially Rooms of Heaven and Hell, what were you guys' interpretations? Um, I'll go first. I I thought it was, it was really, I think I started laughing. Um, during that section, um, which sounds morbid, I guess, but it really, it just seemed like a really human thing to make. Like, I, I just thought, like, these are patterns that still exist, this sort of oscillation, like, you think sort of how, how different churches work, um, or even different periods of history in terms of what kind of, um, preaching is most popular with people. There seems to be this kind of oscillation back and forth historically between times where people want to hear very kind of fire and brimstone, um, services generationally, and then, um, Later, you know, there's a reaction against that, and, and popular theology kind of changes, and we keep historically going back and forth. And and so I thought that that's kind of what she's doing, too. I mean, this is just sort of a, a replication of, of things that happened before and, and keep happening in our day. Um, and I, I thought it was interesting that they are um, static not static because they rotate, but um, static rooms in terms of being. Um, next to each other and and moving in concert that really made me think of kind of our our history of of um theological interpretation and how maybe um the way these interpretations are arranged changes but that they, they always just kind of continue to react to one another um uh, again i'd said it before but the more things change the more they stay the same we're sort of trapped in these patterns uh, I was also really interested in the the section of, about Adam um, and and his relation to um, the garden. She she asks, is is Adam um, did did he flee when he was driven out of paradise? Um, and and the people say, uh, out of this world, you are now empress of into the world you came from. And then she kind of tries to, to work that out. So I, I thought it was interesting that, um, that again, she can't escape um, this, this mythos, that it, it is kind of attached even to this fantasy world. Um, we're, we're all sort of trying to interpret things in, in similar ways, even within um, this invented interpretation. Though I, I wouldn't go so far as to say it works allegorically, because I'm not sure it does. And now I feel like I'm rambling, so I will stop. Oh, that's interesting, like the talk about the, the main city in the blazing world being called Paradise and then identified with Eden. Um, I wonder if there's something there with, like, this is the world that she's created for herself and that world is Paradise, like the fictional creation of the worlds is a way to create paradise? I don't know. <laughs> what did you think, Leah? To be honest, I was very confused by all of it. I think I read like the, it was one page where it was just talking about the chapels of heaven and hell or emblems of heaven and hell. And I read it a couple times through I giggled at one point to Victoria, although I was giggling more at the idea of animal men coming into those chapels. Yeah, I, 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 I guess in the way that it, it, they are emblems of heaven and hell and the fire and brimstone preaching versus more of the redemption preaching, uh, it felt 
both foreign and familiar to me. Foreign because um, this allegory is so strong, if allegory is the right word, um, that it it seems alien, <laughs> which makes sense because it is in a very fictional world. But it does feel familiar because of that cycle that Victoria mentioned. And not only the cycle in history, but also I would say um, more personally, I think both the sermons of fire and brimstone versus the sermons of forgiveness um, kind of cycle as we go through our own faith walks. So I thought that was interesting. But yes, a lot of the religious questions, I, I think I just need to reread it again to really soak it in. They kind of went over my head this first time reading through it, but I would be very much interested in exploring it more. Uh, yeah, the, I mean, you have to laugh at the description of the, the rooms of heaven and hell. It is a funny passage, which is why... I, th I mean, I hope that she might want it to be funny. I hope it might be satirical on some level. On the other hand, it might just be her being really happy to give the Empress all the power of every kind of power by every means and just having that fantasy of power and empowerment, which is fun in its own way, but it just seems like there's something going on there. Um, okay, well... Let's uh, let's bring up anything else we want to discuss from the blazing world, which uh, there's a lot of room for multiple discussions there before we move on to our last section of um, passing on and recommendations. Um, Leo, is there anything else that you wanted to bring up? I feel like we covered a lot already. Uh, and my head's still spinning from everything that we have already talked about. So I think I'm okay. Okay, Victoria? Uh, I would just like to reiterate that there are fish people who make and use submarines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, seriously, that is worth the price of admission. You should read this just because of that. It's so crazy. There's fish people with submarines. Oh, and the Empress walks on water in order to display her power in that passage with the fish people and the submarines, which is another sort of religious spectacle going on there to create power. Anyway, um, the last thing I want to mention, too, is is what, Victoria, you brought up these, the souls sharing the same body. So um, we have the Duchess's soul sharing a body with the Empress, and at another point, um, both the Empress and the Duchess travel to the Duchess's world, which is presumably our world. Of course, they're all our world on some level, but presumably most our world. And then they travel into the body of William Cavendish, where they all have some great philosophical discussions and their situation there is compared to a harem. Um, and also uh, the Empress and the Duchess become platonic lovers, but there's another part in the text where it's like, uh, but maybe you should be jealous with platonic lovers because there's a little bit of danger there. I don't know. Um, so you can tell just with that, that there's a lot of room for um, reading queer desire and some uh, queer spaces into the text here as critics um, have happily done. And that's just another really fun part of the part of the work for me here. Since you mentioned the three souls, um, that that's the part of the text where I got like just well and truly confused. Um, but I, I did want to ask, since you know more about this text um, and its reception than I do, about um, responses to that section in particular when this was published. Uh, you you mentioned the queer stuff that's that's clearly there. Um, I I also since um, first you have two souls and then you have three, wondered about um, Trinitarianism there. Um, what, what do we know about whether or not uh, Cavendish was herself a Trinitarian? And also were people, r religious people, people in the church, or just people 
of religious faith. Um, do we have period responses to how they felt about this section of the text? Because I, I feel like it probably made some people angry. Hmm. About this section particularly, I don't know. I mean, I haven't heard of contemporary responses focused on that. You would think there would be because it's so strange. Um, yeah, I don't know about that, though. On the Trinitarian aspect, um, there is a repetition of three going on throughout the text. So you have the three souls in the body there. You have the three stars that are observed by the astronomers, and then they talk about that with the empress. Um, you have the three different worlds, which is the world the empress originally came from, the blazing world, and then the duchess's world. Um, so a lot of threes going on. There may be maybe a Trinitarian motif there, I think. Um, Particularly in thinking about the three souls, um, I, I was struck by the fact that there is one man and two women. Um, all, all the theories that I have ever been taught about gender and the trinity um at, at most we get one feminine part right there are some theologians who say um there's a sort of femininity to to the holy spirit um but the father and the son are masculine so i was thinking um that there's a gender reversal there and i don't know what to make of that Oh yeah, that's interesting. Although when um when William Cavendish's soul is mentioned on its own, it's actually gendered female because all the souls are female being souls. Um so it you could see it as three female entities within one male body, which <laughs> I guess you could take as an emblem of a, a female trinity within a male-coded ideology, but I don't think that she's actually doing that, but that's kind of an interesting image. Um, I think yeah. we're going too deep now. We need to pull back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should move on to the passing on section, <laughs> but those are uh, really interesting uh, avenues of thought to pursue. I'll have to look into more what Cavendish would have would have thought about Trinitarianism. Trinitarianism. Um, okay, so, and uh, let's go on then to passing on where we'll give our recommendations to listeners for things that we think they should read or watch, and I'll go first. Uh, I think I'm going to recommend a fictional work on Cavendish that I read recently. It's Danielle Dutton's Margaret the First, which came out last year, and it's a small quietly poetic little novel that tells the story of Cavendish's life. Um, it's fun because it includes a lot of great details drawn from 17th century life, and it also integrates a lot of quotes directly from Cavendish's work. Um, it paints Cavendish as struggling against obstacles faced by female artists across history. It's also um, a quick and easy read if you're interested in just learning more about Cavendish's life. Uh, what, what about you, Leah? What's your recommendation? I'm going to recommend the article Gender, Genre, and the Utopian Body in Margaret Cavendish's Blazing World by Marina Leslie. It's found in the Utopian Studies Journal um, from 1996. It's a wonderful article that just explores a lot of different topics that connect to Blazing World. Um including how Cavendish plays with genres and plays with gender and the idea of utopia in the work. Um, I'm also going to be a total fangirl and suggest that listeners read Thomas More's Utopia. Um, I especially like the Norton Critical Edition of the book because of the notes and the introduction. Um, it just really connected to Blazing World for me and um, reminded me of my love of Thomas More. Um, so I really just encourage listeners to go and read that as well. 
Thanks. That sounds like um, a great article. And yeah, reading other utopias in relation to this makes sense. So I would say Francis Bacon's New Atlantis as well would be a good one. Um, what's What's your recommendation, Victoria? So since we're talking about early utopias, uh, thank you for providing me with that uh, excellent lead-in. Uh, I'm going to recommend uh, Christine de Pizan's The Book of the City of Ladies. Um, yay! Christine de Pizan is the best! Um, and I, I was, was reminded a lot of The Book of the City of Ladies reading The Blazing World. Uh, so... Christine de Pizan writes the Book of the City of Ladies in 1405. It's her most famous text, and um, it is a response to the Roman de la Rose. Uh, the author of that text says a lot of terrible things about women um, and, and the vices of women, and she responds to him by creating this allegorical city of ladies um, and houses it with a lot of famous historical women. Um, they're very smart and do a lot of great things. The allegory is really interesting. I'm not going to speak in much more detail because uh, you should go read the Book of the City of Ladies. And if you can find an illustrated edition, uh, you will be doing yourself a favor. The illustrations are lush and beautiful. That's a great recommendation, Victoria. Um, uh, and I need to look at those illustrations. Okay, so that's our show then. Uh, thank you, Victoria and Leah, for joining me and looking at this really, really fascinating writer. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Uh, Kristen Flippick is our press liaison, and Elizabeth Brimner is our intern. For Victoria Ren Reynolds Farmer and Leah Hennings, I'm Marie Haas. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss Christian views on, dis on divorce. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.